You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here with Dean Buonamano, who is a professor of psychology and neurobiology at UCLA, also affiliated with the Brain Research Institute down there, and the author of a couple books, this one right here, Brain Bugs, which from now on, I'm, I'm going to associate those two words, even if I didn't before, How the Brain's Flaws Shape Our Lives. And then his most recent book is Your Brain is a Time Machine, The Neuroscience and Physics of Time. Welcome, Dean. Thank you very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I love the title of the book, Brain Bugs, but I think it's kind of misleading, right? Because I think that part of your message in the book is that a lot of the things that we refer to as bugs, you know, are, are really features and they serve a very important purpose and, and role. And maybe the only reason why they appear to be bugs is because of maybe you know, a mismatch. In other words, there's environmental novelty and maybe we're not optimized for that new environment. Or even if it was in the existing environment, we're solving a constrained optimization problem. And what matters is what works best in most scenarios. And by best, we mean reproductive success. So in my class on behavioral finance, I like to say that animal behavior people, they never talk about dumb animals. Like I've never at any animal behavior society conference, I've never heard anybody refer to a dumb animal. And yet, you know, we as economists are always talking about how dumb people are. And were you trying to be provocative when you chose the title uh, Brain Bugs? Absolutely. So, so in, in part of it, you're constrained to come up with catchy titles. But you're absolutely right in the sense that the brain bugs are context dependent. And the same optimization solution could be appropriate in one environment and totally non-appropriate in another. But the overall point is that, yes, in some contexts, we make very poor decisions, obviously, as you know, and that's because of those poor decisions that we often examine in behavioral finance and behavioral economics have a neuroscientific underpinning. So there's a reason we behave that. And in many cases, the reason is because it was adaptive in other contexts. Absolutely, 100%. And to bring up the animal case that you that you just used, I actually use that context dependency as an example. And in terms of animals doing dumb things, one of the examples that I, we discuss is skunks, right? So skunks, skunks are very cocky animals, right? Because they have this very powerful defense mechanism and they let you know, don't screw with me, man, because I'm just going to turn around, lift my tail and spray you. And it's incredibly effective because if you're a predator and you get that odor on you, you might die because you can't sneak up on any other animal anymore. Now, so that's a very valid defense mechanism for skunks. But if you're a skunk and you're in the middle of the road and a car is approaching and you turn around and lift your tail, that's incredibly maladaptive. So that's a bug because of the modern environment. So the animal, like we humans, are inhabiting a world we didn't evolve to live in or we weren't optimized to inhabit. Of course, anybody who's ever had to hose the, the smell of a skunk off their car, uh, you know, maybe maybe, maybe it's, it still might be adaptive as long as people have the ability to uh, break in time. Well, <laughs> fair enough. But, but I, I did look up the numbers on that and it doesn't look good for the skunks in terms of what the most common road kill is for animals. You know, what's interesting is that we've been 
you refer to the brain as I think the most advanced pattern recognition machine on earth. And you talk about how powerful it is and how effective it is and the wonders and that it's capable of. For most of our modern history in 20th century, when we talk about computers, we oftentimes talk about the brain as a computer, or at least we did until deep learning was flipped the script a little bit. And we tried to make computers a little more brain-like, but why is it that we can continue to think about the brain as a computer and what exactly are, are the differences? I mean, I like to think that there are comparative advantages, right? That particularly when you're designing within organizations, like what should the humans do and what should the computers do? There are comparative advantages for different types of processes, different types of, of problem solving. So I think this is in part a question that relates to the ambiguity of the word computers, right? So I tend to use the word computers as information processing devices. So the brain is obviously a biological computer in that sense. It's much like the computers we use. They're information processing devices. Our computers have inputs in terms of the mouse, the screen, and our biological computers has input structures in terms of our fingertips, our eyes and ears, and so forth. And then they have circuits set up to process that information and make decisions and generate output. So there's no doubt that they're both information processing devices. Now, if by computers you mean a silicon-based von Neumann architecture in which you have a CPU, you have an external memory, the information is going back and forth, of course the brain is not a computer in that sense. Now, it's also useful or educational, at least, to remember where the word computer came from. Right? The word computer was originally for humans. The word computer referred to humans that spent time doing numerical calculations. So like many things, uh, we have to just be careful how we want to define the word. Now, it's interesting that there is, of course, this convergence in terms of the silicon-based computers and biological information processing devices in terms of their converging and what they can and cannot do. But originally, and this is one of my favorite, ex most obvious examples of the inherent limitations of the brain. So the brain, I don't have to discuss to convince you or anybody that the brain sucks mental numerical calculations. We're all quite comfortable with that notion, even though the brain is the most complex device in the known universe. So why are digital computers so much better at numerical calculations compared to the brain? And one of the standard answers to that question is that, the, okay, the brain didn't evolve to do numerical calculations. So of course, we didn't evolve to see a snake and recognize that its circumference is a function of its radius. We evolved to recognize, whoa, that's a snake, let me get out of here. But I don't think, and I've made this point, that's the full picture. I think we should pay attention to the hardware. And the inherent hardware of the brain really determines what we're good at and what we're not good at. And no electrical engineer, no computer scientist would build a numerical calculating device, something to do long division, using neurons. Because neurons are simply ill-suited, they're poorly suited to do mathematical calculations because they don't operate very well as switches, unlike transistors. So we want to pay attention to the architecture. And now jumping to, say, decision-making, the decisions we make are also highly influenced by the architecture of the brain. And this is that notion of the associative architecture of the brain. We're always associating things. The brain is not very compartmentalized, right? So it's an information processing device that's always getting mixed signals, being influenced by irrational 
and irrelevant factors that have a dramatic um, effect on our behavior. So it's by being aware of this, by understanding the architecture of the brain, I think that provides a better understanding of who we are and, and how we can make better decisions. So I want to talk more about this associative architecture, which is the unique feature of, it's not human brain, but brains in general. And this is usually something that if you're in the judgment decision-making world, you're kind of bashing that aspect of cognition. We normally say that's the root of all the problems is this associative thinking, right? System one thinking, and we have to override it. We're always emphasizing the ways in which it gets things wrong, but really this is the strength of the human brain, right? This is really what enables it to adapt so quickly to the environment. And I think one of the points that you make is that as tempting as it might be to talk about hardware versus software, in the world of neuroscience, that distinction often breaks down. Could you talk about, right, does that, where does that metaphor break down in the human brain? So I think it's useful to say some words about what we mean by the associative architecture, right? So if you look at a, a transistor in, in the digital computers, each transistor is connected essentially by wires to a couple of other transistors, maybe a dozen, maybe a couple of dozen. Each neuron in your brain can be connected to a thousand other neurons. So they're very promiscuous information processing building blocks. And that, for good or bad, really establishes some of the fundamental ways in which humans think. So as you said, in the field of behavioral economics and behavioral uh, finance, that's often bashed because it often leads us to make irrational decisions. So if I say, well, I'm going to lose $20 or keep $20, that has a dramatic effect on the decisions people make because of the way things are framed. I think you, you quoted Steven Pinker as saying, this is like saying that hands are poorly designed to get out of handcuffs. Yeah, right, right, exactly, because those handcuffs were designed to make it hard to get out of. And so in one of the examples that's I think people can relate to, to as you referred to them as system one and system two, which I tend to use as sort of the associative and the reflective system, is what do cows drink? So everybody wants to answer milk to that. And that's the associative architecture of the brain. You just have a strong association, or the vast majority of people have a strong association between cows, drink, and milk. So most people will first think of that. And then the reflective system kicks in, hopefully, and says, no, wait a minute, it's water. Cows drink water. So you have these two systems. I don't know if when you teach and when you do these conversations, I guess you're normally using system one or system two, but there's different terms for that. But I think it's the fundamental architecture of the brain that system one is hardcore built in, right? It's just the neurons that are activated by cow automatically trigger the activation of the neurons that are represent milk in our brains. It's just how the system is set up. And this has all sorts of implications. Now, in many cases, though, that's great because this is exactly one of the things that humans do well, which is generalized to different contexts. We get the gist of things. So again, you're, I'm sure you've talked about the false memory examples with DRM in which you might have like a list of words where somebody says candy, sour, sugar, bitter, good, taste. And then at a later point, people are asked, was the word sweet on that? And the word sweet wasn't on that list, but people often mistakenly assume. So that's the bad effect. But in reality, most of the time, what you want is the gist. Hey, that was a list of sweet things or, or something. So this goes back to your first point. 
the bugs, the features and the bugs are entirely dependent on the context. But I think that what's unique about humans is the degree to which the, these associations are plastic. Or in other words, when you're designing a fish, you're going to hardwire a whole bunch of behaviors into the fish. But with a human, right, you're, you're going to create a, a recipe for learning, which is highly flexible. And to get back to that example, presumably we associate sugar and sweetness because of our experiences in life, eating sugar. And if you'd never, ever been exposed to sugar, then presumably this association would never happen, right? Absolutely. And that example that I gave you, what do cows drink? I've never tested that. I do this in my class. And 90% of the students will answer milk if they're answering quickly. Now, maybe in India, that's not the case. Might be the case because they still, it's still, people still have cows to drink and you can still use the milk. But they also associated with deities or gods. So absolutely. And, and that's very powerful, right? Because it allows us to adapt to our environment, whether we grew up in the Amazon or grew up in New York City. But and this is something that maybe we'll talk about later. It's and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts, but it's this adaptability that's also a bug, right? Because that's what allows us to be manipulated in any ways or to exploit our brain bugs through marketing or through political advertising and so forth and populism and so forth. So it's always, as you know, in any complex optimization problem, there's trade-offs, right? So it's both a feature and a bug. And presumably there are some associations that are easier to make than, than others. And we're talking about fear. You have a whole chapter on fear, which I found very useful. And you talk about how with Monkeys, right? They don't have any innate fear of snakes, but if they see uh, someone fear a snake, they very quickly learn how to fear snakes in ways that they wouldn't with, say, flowers or whatever. And as humans, presumably, the, the you talk about what fires together, wires together, and and presumably th there are things that when they fire together, they're more likely to wire together than other sorts of things. But we can also kind of alter that trajectory, right? We can create associations if we want to have those associations through the educational process, create associations that more closely resemble the things that we want. You mentioned the implicit association test. We talk a lot about that. And of course, it has lots of applications outside of its most common use. And presumably, it's easier to get people to associate in-groups with positive things and out-groups with negative things. Conceivably, you could do the opposite, right? Through a series of experiential associations, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. So we do seem to have some built-in biases in our associations. And I love that example. And yeah, it seems that it's easier to convince a human or a chimp to fear a snake by showing another conspecific fearing that snake because we have, it's not that we necessarily are innately afraid of snakes, but we seem to be innately prepared to fear snakes. We also seem to be innately prepared, and this is a difficult topic and one that's still debated to the extent that we're innately prepared to fear humans that are not of our own tribe, outgroups. But there's significant evidence that might be the case. And again, if you go back to chimpanzees, you know, chimpanzees are certainly classified as probably xenophobic in that you don't want to be from another tribe and get caught in the territory of another group of chimpanzees. So humans seem to have a bit of an innate bias to have certain types of associations within their group. No, but of course, part of that is just 
again, that's who you're exposed to. So it's often hard to really get to that in practice in many of these studies. There may be some flexibility as to what constitutes an in-group, let's say, right? Yes, absolutely. Good point. Absolutely. And yeah, because there's many dimensions that you can classify that of not including the language people are speaking and gender and so forth, or the color t-shirts they wear, or their sports group, right? So it's not, so there's a lot of flex, flexibility there. But that same flexibility, you're right, does provide a potential mechanism to debug the system. And that's what we all have to do in society and to try to combat these stereotypes. So when people write books, we try to say the engineer designed a system that she was proud of because just breaking those correlations alters the wire to the fire together, wire together principle. So we try to break those correlations and establish more helpful pro-social correlations, if you will. But in your opinion, what is, like you mentioned the implicit association test, what do you think the implicit association tests have, how that has influenced our understanding in behavioral economic or more in your field? Yeah. I mean, I think that the area where we focus most in education is obviously around this in-group, out-group thing. And of course, paid a lot of attention to it because we're trying to find correlations between that and actual kind of behavioral expressions of discrimination or whatever. And I think there's mixed results there, right? It doesn't seem like it necessarily predicts behavior, but you talk about these associations across a whole wide range of domains and how you can elicit these kind of, I don't know, categorical associations or conceptual associations or idea associations in a wide range of domains, right? Not just simply the one that has risen to attention among most social scientists. And again, we, as in neuroscience and psychology, we have to remember that we talk about associations. The most fundamental and really most primordial form of learning is classical conditioning and opera conditioning. These are associations, right? So there's no doubt that those are very powerful heuristics for the brain to organize and to succeed in a world. And then at this sort of uh, higher level of the associative architecture, we also form associations to make sense of words. And I give the examples of how do you know, how do children learn what words mean? And again, that's all, It's a, the power of associations is really amazing. I told this story when I was a young, mean little brother, I would tease my sister saying, you're intelligent until she would go crying to my mother. And because I found it amusing at the time that she would cry to my mother saying, Dini called me intelligent because you learn the meaning of words by the associations you make in the context. If somebody's teasing you, that becomes a negative association, even though that doesn't reflect the meaning of the word. So yes, the brain's ability, it's impossible to overstate how important associations are for cognition, behavior, learning, and decision-making. But I think you make the point also that they're sticky, right? So there's there seems to be this positive reinforcement or this reconsolidation. So if you have an association, then when you think of a concept, you think of this other concept. And then when you start doing that over and over again, it actually kind of doubles down on the association. And then it makes it more difficult to, to dislodge. And then when you do dislodge it, what you're really doing is you're not deleting it, but rather over overwriting it. And so this would presumably mean that early experiences have a disproportionate 
influence relative to later experiences. Like we're not really Bayesian updating because we're shaping the inputs based on these associations. So what's, what do you think is, what's the evolutionary rationale for that? Shouldn't we all be Bayesian updaters? Yeah, that's a great example because if it was just pure Bayesian updating, the past would be erased eventually, right? There's no time dependency or generally for the Bayesian updating. But, and I, I do agree, although I, I don't know if the data is totally conclusive about that, that early experiences are more more dominant in terms of ultimately determining the schema, the associations of within our neural networks. But this is an important distinction, and it's a nice point of contrast between digital computers and biological computers, right? So we have the delete button on digital computers. And it seems that for the most part, when we update our associations, we're not so much erasing them, but we're establishing new ones that might supersede the old ones. So you and I are of a generation that we learned that Pluto is a planet, right? So if we did a priming task or an implicit association task, I think you and I would probably be primed um, by Pluto if we had to respond quickly to planet. But you and I both know at the reflective system under system two, (laughs) that's changed. So your question is, why didn't we evolve to have a deletion system for just to erase that information? And again, I don't know if we have a good answer to that, but I think the answer, the example I just gave you is actually a good one, right? Because we, that information is still actually, we still want to know that Pluto was a planet. You might be reading a book from the 1980s or a movie, and they might say, Pluto's a planet. And maybe in a newer generation, they would say, what the hell is that about? But we know, oh, because in that context, that was the case. So this happens again, even at the more basic level of classical conditioning. So if you, if animals fear to fear a given context, like a tone, because they've gotten shocked in the past in that tone, they seem to make, it's pretty clear, they make associations between the tone, the auditory pathway that carries that information, might activate neurons in the amygdala, which might in turn might activate neurons in other motor areas that induce certain escape or freezing behaviors. Now, you can extinguish that so they stop exhibiting that fear, but it doesn't seem that we're erasing that connection because it can be easily re-engaged, which makes sense. You might want to store critical information in the background in case it becomes relevant again. So I think it's a, again, it's an interesting computational choice one has to make when they're designing an information processing system is when you learn something new, should you erase the old stuff or should you just back it up as we do with our old backups in on our computers? Well, so I'm wondering if we can alter our learning trajectory intentionally, right? So if you think about if you hear a bell and you get food, then you're going to have the Pavlovian response. Every time you hear the bell, you go looking for the food. And if the food stops coming, then presumably the salivation will go away. But if it's a negative thing, every time you know you go near something, you get a shock, you'll generally stay away from that area. And so you'll never have an opportunity to see that negative response go away. So when we look at PTSD or look at some of these other phobias, is this sort of the motivation behind exposure therapy where it's, look, we have to force you to you know, expose yourself to this negative stimulus so that you can learn that it is not in fact correlated with the outcome that you're implicitly associating with it. Absolutely. In the standard sort of psychology or Pavlovian 
terminology is just called extinction. And that extinction, it's easier to see how the extinction to a positive reinforcement might extinguish faster than for a negative reinforcement for a number of reasons, as you just said, because in a natural scenario, you might be exposed to the extinction process more because you're exploring the positive reinforcement issues more than the negative. But in practice, they all extinguish. So either they're forced, because even if it's a negative reinforcement, you want to avoid an area, sometimes you can't avoid that area, or sometimes you can't avoid the sound. So the extinguish process, which is a type of learning in itself, so it's not forgetting, which used to be, I think, maybe 100 years ago, it was thought that extinction was a type of forgetting. But it's best seen as a different type of learning and suppressing of a previously existent learn response. And yes, although that's not my field, that is exactly the case in that exposure theory or cognitive behavioral therapy are about exposing things, engaging that circuitry. Now, you also mentioned the, the process of reconsolidation. And this, so for human memory, I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of consolidation. So we learn something and it goes through this consolidation process in which it becomes sort of a bit more ingrained within our neural circuits. And we can go into the details if you'd like. But what's interesting here, and this is one of my favorite examples of the distinction between, again, a digital computer and the brain, is that accessing the information is, in a sense, rewriting that circuit. So when we retrieve information from our computer hard drive, it doesn't alter that, nor does it even store that information that it was retrieved. But in the case of the human brain, every time we retrieve information, we're also sort of rewriting it or reconsolidating it. And again, this makes sense in the sense that every time you see your nephew every six months or every year, you're not only recalling her or your niece or nephew, his or her face, but you're rewriting it as well. So you're continuously updating it. So the process of writing information down and recalling it is not independent, but interacting in the case of the brain, which is very different in the case of computer. What would be the evolutionary explanation for that? And on the one hand, things that you don't ever encounter or have any reason to recall, presumably those things kind of slough off or become you know fuzzier. I, I guess that would make sense. And then if you're seeing your nephew every year, you're going to revise the mental image of that nephew. Is there a evolutionary reason why we would want our memories to be faulty, right? There's all these examples that you have of faulty memory where we kind of invent our memory. And when you ask people which brain bug they would like to fix the most, it's usually you want to have more of an accurate memory. Is our memories expensive? If Is there some kind of metabolic energy or there are people that say we're only using 10% of our brain? I sometimes feel like that, that the only way for me to learn something new is I've got to forget something old. Is there really a limited capacity? Or when we talk about these memory athletes, okay, they're basically remembering more stuff. What's the trade-off there? What are they giving up when they learn to have kind of these better memories? So I think there's two questions there. So let's go back to the memory championships in a minute. But the first question of why it might be the case that our memories are faulty, if there's some evolutionary reason for that, I think it would be an overstatement to say that we know the answer to that, which probably doesn't come as a surprise to you because we know so little about the brain. But I think on a more slightly more speculative basis, of course, memory has a cost. The question is the cost significant. So compared to everything else that's going on. To use the Borges, use the Borges. Yeah, exactly. Is, if you 
remembered everything, then you'd basically have mental gridlock. Yeah. Right? So Funis the Memorial, which is a short story by Borges, which I, I highly recommend. And we've all heard about these cases of savants that have incredible memory, but they often can't cope with other social aspects of life as neurotypics. And one interpretation is that is yes, that if you if I remembered seeing, if we met many times and I remembered not only your face every time, but remembered remembering you every time, <laughs> because it's not only if, oh, I thought of him. And if I were to remember every time I thought of Greg, that you could see how that could become incapacitating. Now, in terms of uh, a critical issue is memory capacity, right? Now, I think you've hinted at this and I'm, I'm totally on board with you. I feel that my memory capacity is limited, which it clearly is. We can't remember everything we'd like to. So I do take the position that one of the reasons we forget and one of the reasons that our memories are not perfect is because there is a capacity issue. Now, it's extremely hard to quantify. And you said some people have a better memory, some people don't, and it seems like well, how can you reconcile that? Somebody only knows one language and somebody knows 10 languages. And it seems like, wait a minute, that has to be different hardware. It's important to note that even computers. So you're going to buy a new computer and you say, well, I want a two terabyte hard drive. OK, and that's wonderful. That tells you how many zeros or ones you can store. But who gives a damn how many zeros or ones you can store? What matters is how many PDFs you can store, how many images you can store, how many videos you can store. And that's far from clear, right? Because it depends on the format. So all you need to say is that, well, if this person is using one format to learn 10 languages and this person is using a different format, that might explain it, right? Because I can store 10 times as many pictures on my hard drive if they're in, say, compressed JPEG or, say, in TIFF. So in a way, it's not surprising that there's such... So maybe the brain, for whatever reason, has different, to use a non-scientific term here, formats for our memories. But what I should say is different strategies to storing the same information. Well, the example used in the book with this is the idea you meet someone on a plane and their name is Baker or their occupation is Baker. And you're much more likely to remember the latter than the former but in computational terms, it's the same number of bits, right? It's the same number that word Baker is. And, and it's because you have a larger number of associations that you can make with that. There may be, if you come from a village where there's lots of people named Baker, then maybe, you know, the reverse would be true. So I guess the question is, um, you know, work as economists, we always want to know, like, are we below the frontier or are we on the frontier? And if we're on the frontier, then everything's about trade-offs. If we're below the frontier, then, hey, there's a win-win out there. And so for those of us who are trying to figure out how to become you know, more educated, there's always this question, can I become more educated or am I just going to have to displace something else? If I can't remember why I'm walking towards the refrigerator and I can't remember why I went to the refrigerator, but then you know, I've got the Jennifer Aniston neuron <laughs> up there, right? whatever. I could name every member of the uh, Philadelphia Eagles football team. And I know the capital of Mongolia. But I, I can't remember why I went to the refrigerator. Do I have to give up my Ulan Bator if I want to do this, or can I push myself to the frontier? Is that the capital of Mongolia? I, and I learned it when I was three, so that's why I know it. Been meaning to um, to look that up, Greg. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know that. Okay. Yes, I think it's clear that there's always 
room for improvement. There's one thing that's just crystal clear about the brain, right? So practice, we're always practicing and improving. Now, that practice can kick in from a very low baseline in which you only know a few places or a lot of places. But it's rarely, I know of no instances. And so I want to be careful with that. But I can't think of any instances in which learning one thing significantly impairs learning of another. There's cases of interference in which if you learn two things in a short period of time, they can interfere with each other. But I know of no instances, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, in which like learning one language takes away from your ability to do math or something like that, or that you're going to lose your knowledge of your favorite sports team. Well, let's put it this way. When it comes to the kind of network map of associations, I've interviewed a lot of people on network theory, but they've, they've all been talking about human networks. And I think you're, one of your key claims is that there's understanding neuroscience is really like understanding a network and it's understanding these associational networks. And, you know, presumably when we're born, we have this somewhat wide open landscape for what kind of connections we're going to form. And then over time we form this, these, some connections get stronger and then these others drop off. And is there an optimal network diagram or are there different network diagrams that are more functional in different environments? Like if you have what we call like a Damon Santola in sociology talks about like these hub and spoke networks versus spider web networks. Can we organize our thinking to promote more associations rather than fewer and deeper associations? Yeah. So the structure in terms of small worldishness of these neural networks and the degree of hub neurons and so forth. So I think it's, again, clear. We know enough to say that, no, there's not one optimal structure because the optimality will depend on the context, what you need to do. So presumably near optimal brain will be able to change the structure to optimize it for that task at hand. If you're a teacher or a podcast host and you're continuously accessing random information, maybe that network would be different from somebody who's very specialized in just reading X-ray radiographies for diagnostics procedures. So there's, so I think the richness of the brain is precisely due to its flexibility. And by the way, if you train a machine learning deep neural network model, you're probably going to end up with different connectivity patterns depending on what you train it on as well. So there's clearly no magical optimal network structure because it's dependent on the information and task at hand. But for once we specialize for one task, that might limit our ability to engage in other tasks. But in terms of our ability to learn new things, I think we are relying on the ability to sort of form new associations. So if you learn two totally unrelated things that weren't associated, so you learn my name and that I came from Mongolia. So there's no direct link between those, presumably. So you have to form them or going directly. And we don't know how the brain achieves that. Now, let me just go back and say one thing in terms of the capacity issue and that maybe the structure somehow determines the capacity and maybe some structures are better suited to store a lot of information and learn 10 languages or or just one. You know, one of my pet peeves, I do think, as I said, that there is a capacity constraint. And one of my pet peeves in terms of, so in people who work about in the field of longevity and they say, okay, let's expand human lifespan. That's very non-neurocentric focused, right? They say, okay, we're going to cure heart disease or tweak the genes that are involved in aging. And I'm always thinking, well, but how about the brain? Because if the brain has a capacity issue and 
How are you going to store more information? None of those typical targets of longevity really address the issue of memory capacity. So if we live to a 200, I fall, and this is again, just my opinion, I fall on the view that there's going to be a serious problem in terms of adding another 100 years of capacity to the human brain to store another 100 years worth of experience. That wouldn't be a problem maybe if memories were like FIFO, but they seem to be LIFO. And you're just going to be walking around as a child for the last hundred years or so. You know, one of the things I th found interesting in, in your book was that you were, so not only were you showing that a lot of the heuristics and, and biases in that literature have sort of a rationale, right? It makes sense in a certain environment, but you're also, I think, arguing that a lot of the, a lot of them have the same root cause, right? So whether it's framing, anchoring, loss aversion, conjunction effect, right? All of those kind of stem from this associative architecture of the brain? I do believe that. I do believe that some of the most serious brain bugs, that is, that have the most significant impact on our quality of life as both individuals and as members of society, have a common root cause. And perhaps two of those causes are, one is the associative architecture, but it's in that sort of uh, roundabout way. It's because we make associations that opens a venue for exploiting our brain bugs. And that's basically- It's this context dependency, right? That's the strength. The strength and the weakness is this sensitivity to context. Absolutely. Right? But because it's adaptive, we live in a world in which we're continuously bombarded with associations that other people want us to make, either for profit or for political gain or for power. I, I made the point. In a typical presidential election, billions of dollars are spent on propaganda and political marketing and so forth. Now, not to assign any nefarious purpose to that, but the fact is that money is being spent to hopefully either change our decisions, change our point of view, or provide information. But no matter how you look at it, it's spent to, in one way or the other, to rewire some of our circuits. Now, if that can be incredible. I think you refer to like slander through repetition or, right? Either way, uh, it could be form. just continuous slander. So associating candidate A is a criminal. Candidate A is criminal. Candidate A is criminal or candidate. But you don't even have to say that they're a criminal. You just say, is candidate yeah, A a criminal? Exactly. And that creates the same. Yeah, because you're associating two words that are active together, so they end up being wired together. So that's exactly right, Greg. Or, but it can be, you know, candidate B is a wonderful human being, and fine. But either way, no matter how you look at it, that money is being spent to rewire, in some sense, our neural circuits. Now, so that makes us vulnerable to, that's one way that our brain bugs are exploited. And I think that it's hard to, again, overstate how important that is in shaping our opinions. And we don't need to go into examples, but the recent political situation with the whole conspiracy theories and fake news and QAnon and so forth are examples of how this massive degree of repetition is clearly, in some sense, exploiting the neurons that fire together, wire together, <laughs> architecture of the brain and creating associations that are not necessarily adaptive and in many ways are, are not mild adaptive. So yeah, in my opinion, I, I really do feel that way, that the associative architecture of brain obviously is one of our most valuable features, but it's also makes us incredibly vulnerable and is ultimately a 
threat in some ways to our own well-being and to but i think your recipe for kind of managing these things would be very different from that of say a typical jdm type person right so a typical jd you know we had business schools well we do teach people how to you know use all these these nefarious techniques right you know uh, social proof and so forth not only to sell products but to advance our careers but then we also teach people to try to you know minimize their susceptibility to it but the way in which we do that is we say now be aware of it be more reflective override this stuff and i think what you're saying is that that ultimately there's limits to how much you can do that and really what you need to do is alter the associations you have and change the flow of experiences you have there's this thing you refer to in this book as, as like amygdala politics and two ways to deal with that one way would be you know what, I'm going to read all this news feed, but I'm going to steel myself against it. Another way would be to like, I'm just not even going to look at it. And I think the, the latter approach would presumably be a better immunization strategy, perhaps than, you know, trying to. Yeah, it's a great question. But let me ask you, is there much known? So you said that from your field that students learn about it and in some sense they learn to tap into it or exploit it but they also learn to try to i think you said to make themselves de-biased de-biased yeah is there any evidence so in practice are there many studies that have examined how effective that is or not is that something that's somewhat understood or not so my, my understanding of literature is that it's not terribly effective these de-biasing lessons they may help people to strengthen their kind of willpower and their capacity to override their system one but it doesn't change their system one you know and this is why i was thinking about when you're referring to like if we think about say racism right if people have a negative association with a particular group do we simply tell them hey you know be aware of it and ignore it going forward do we have to forge an entirely new associations or is the, the process of continually reminding people of these associations reinforcing the associations i don't know the answer to this question but it's super important for us as educators i agree and and as members of society when you say de-biasing what you're referring to i'm not that familiar with that term de-biasing means just trying to train people to be cognizant of the system one system two and tap into system two is that what that means yeah yeah, so like you talk and, and you mentioned hyperbolic discounting. You didn't use the term, but you know, you're referring to it in, in the book. And by making people aware of it, just sort of alerts them to when they may potentially fall prey to it. And so they're saying, oh, whoops, I, I might be falling prey to it right now. I better be careful, maybe rethink it and pause and hesitate before I make my decision. An entirely different thing might be to just when you see that zero percent credit card ad you know you throw it out without even opening the envelope and and we don't generally tell people to do that but i, I think that might be a more effective way of just don't even go into the casino rather than go you know walking in and saying hey you know i'm gonna pay very careful attention to the odds it may just be like don't go in i think you know this is something that's an incredibly profound and, and important question and to be clear i don't claim to have any answers to that and, and anybody who does would be being dishonest but my position is certainly that the problem is sufficiently complex that all approaches are necessary so on one side i'm totally on board and to and i think it's absolutely necessary to educate people about system one and system two and to do what you're calling the bias or we go to implicit bias class when we're on search committees and stuff to be aware of these things. So I think we clearly 
need to do that. And that's, I continuously use the what do cows drink example to get people that point across is that you yourself, anybody themselves is aware of those two systems working because they can feel them working. And if I ask, well, I'm going to throw four coins up in the air. What's the probability exactly two will fall heads? People want to say it's a 50% probability. That's just, we're geared up to that. But by that's, that happens not to be the answer. But by being cognizant of the fact that you should never trust your brain to answer probability, the first question, the first probability answer that comes to mind, if anybody needs to learn anything about the probability theory is that you should never trust the first answer that comes to mind. So in that sense, it's a de-biasing, right? So that's incredibly valuable. And I think the other examples you gave are incredibly valuable too. Now, obviously, also changing the structure of our environment so that we're exposed to specific, so we're not exposed to sort of these, I don't know what I want to call them, malignant associations and more to the benign associations to the extent that's possible is really important. And that's through education, social change, diversity efforts, and so forth. But again, we all know that's limited as well. That's not going to, in first place, who gets to decide what are the good associations? Again, people like Cass Sunstein and many others talk about nudges and so forth. And I think so nudges, I think, are a bit more towards option two about what we're talking, right? They're not so much a de-bias. Sometimes I guess they are de-biased. But sometimes if we're talking about things like putting the healthier food on the upper shelves and the unhealthy food on the lower, that's sort of more changing the associational structure to which the brain is exposed. Or accelerating rewards. So if, if you in education, right, if you can give people rewards as they make progress towards a, a goal that's further away. And I'm thinking in terms of you know, software education, a lot of times people just give up because they, they don't see any progress. It takes so long just to finish that first thing that they, they give up. And so if you can break the thing up into smaller bits and then give people little rewards as they're they're going through, then it helps strengthen their reward circuits and they can have more of an incentive to continue. So that's a good example. So you're tapping into what we know about reward learning and using that to supposedly change the actual structure of the effect of the structure of our internal environment on what we get wired. So I think we have those two options there, sort of this debiasing, just sort of this conscious reflective awareness of System one, the associative system, and system two, the reflective system. And then we have this sort of more psychological neuroscience-based nudges or alterations in what we're exposed to. So your point of, yeah, not even opening the envelope or not even watching TV or being exposed because the, the problem with the brain automatically is we can't consciously not capture the associational structure of the world that we're exposed to. So if associations are happening in our environment, even though I don't consciously believe them, I think they're lies, my brain is making those associations. So yeah, so to the degree we can avoid them, I think that's important as well. And the degree that we as members of society can govern or impose rules and regulations of, no, you can't advertise certain things on TV. You can't say lies on TV. So yeah, those are all good things that protect our associative architecture from certain types of misinformation and manipulation. But I think there's a third item here, which to me is really about understanding our own brain. And this is really a mixture of both. In my, and I talk about this a bit in the last chapter, and it's a bit fuzzy, I realize that. But I think children in school don't necessarily learn much about 
who they are at the neuroscientific level, meaning about the flaws, strengths and flaws of the organ that is that they are, that's making all their decisions. So I do wonder if ultimately a third factor there is just neuroscientific understanding. So you you look at the work, classical work of Tversky and Kahneman and Nudges and so forth, that's not very well grounded. I think it's amazing work, but it's not really well grounded in neuroscience, in my view, at least. Yeah, it's black box. I mean, it's, it's black it's, box. That's exactly yeah. right. And I've always found that a bit frustrating. And I think opening the black box by allowing people to see, oh, that's why I do that might be helpful. But I don't know. I, I'd be curious about your opinion. Do you think that third component is helpful at all? Or what's your view? I definitely think so. But I think I would add to that. It's not simply understanding the mechanisms, but the rationale for the mechanisms, right? Like if you understand what a hammer's for, you're not going to try and unscrew a, a screw with it. So it's not just that you understand the physics of hammers and screwdrivers, but you kind of understand like, well, hey, this is good for this. This is good for that. And we're kind of actually learning that a little bit. Like we're learning that Google's really good for memory. And so we don't really need to, you know, remember stuff any, anymore. And we don't need to understand the mechanics, internal mechanics of a car to use a car. But I think we do need to understand the internal mechanics of this thing we carry around inside our heads. And that's really my main point. Yes, that was really hope, my real hope on bringing, on writing that book in many ways is that I think knowing ourself, it's a form of self-knowledge and, and that's the ultimate, I don't know, that's an overstatement, but I think that's important step in immunization, in, in immunization against our brain bugs and against allowing our brain bugs to be exploited and manipulated. I wouldn't want to let you go without talking a little bit about uh, time. And you do mention time a little bit in, in the book. You have a whole chapter really on perception of time. And you talk about how, you know, you mentioned Einstein's theory of relativity. And it's funny when you ask someone, typical child, what theory of relativity is, they'll talk about how time flies when you're having fun. That's what they think Einstein said. A lot of us are interested in trying to make our, our memories richer and we're trying to make our lives richer. And so we're trying to, I don't know, utilize the excitement and, and the focus and the attention to enrich our, our lives. And we really don't have a good, accurate measure of time, just like we don't have a good, accurate you know, measure of anything. We don't really think like a stopwatch. We think in a very organic way. You know, we have a homunculus in our brain for the different body parts that are distorted. We also have a a physical map that's distorted, but we have this temporal map that is distorted. So what's the function of that? If everything is valuable only insofar as it helps us navigate the future, why is our understanding of the past the way it is? I think we often, as scientists in, in a lot of fields, whether it's psychology, neuroscience, or behavioral economics, place into context as much. And the brain, I, again, um, somewhat in an exaggerated fashion called the brain is the time machine. But I think in some quasi-literal senses, there's some truth to that in the sense that, as you just mentioned, so first place, one of the main goals of the brain is to use information about the past to predict the future so that our memories aren't to allow us to reminisce, they allow us to survive in the future. The brain also allows us to engage in mental time travel, to revisit the past and simulate different futures, which is way better than actually having to live the future. It's better to be able to simulate what will happen if I jump off that cliff and, and simulate that. So a lot of it's about understanding cause and effect. Yes, right? absolutely. And one thing that distinguishes humans from other species is the time scale. So we can understand cause and effect over much longer time scales than any other animals. And in some ways, I would argue 
that in many ways that's probably the most profound difference between humans and other species you think of something like agriculture I thought you said in the book that the most profound difference for humans was the susceptibility to cigarette ads. <laughs> I stand corrected. Yes, yeah. Or no, actually, it might have been that other animals would be immune to buying Fiji water or expensive water because water is water. Most animals wouldn't fall for watering marketing, but humans do. We, we pretend there's flavors to water. But so if you think of something like agriculture, it's a trivial concept, right? It's just like, planting a seed, I will get, or many seeds, and I'm going to get some food that will allow for my sustenance in a year from now. But it establishes, it requires this cause and effect delta T that spans a year or many months. And most animals, even though it's trivial cause and effect relationship, that evades the cognitive capacity of most animals. And we shouldn't be too proud in our capacity because for the most part, we're, while we have the ability, we're still quite bad at it. And as for and cigarettes is a good example, right? If the time between beginning to smoke and cancer was two days, the tobacco industry would never have become a multi-trillion dollar industry. But because- For mice, it would have to be two seconds, right? Yes, exactly. So because it was separated by decades, it's hard for humans to really grasp that. But back to the question of why our perception of time is really rather subjective, obviously, and it can vary dramatically depending on context, if we're having fun or if we're in a stressful, anxiety-provoking situation. So first place, unlike your eyes and your ears, which directly detect physical properties of the external world, time is a construct. So time is something that's estimated internally. And hopefully when it's done well, it's the subjective time is strongly correlated with objective time. But that correlation can go one way, be an underestimate, an over, overestimate, dependent on our context. Now, what's the function of that is not clear, but some people have speculated that adaptive behaviors, things that we are enjoying, seems to make time going slow, and that time going slow makes it more reinforcing and more likely that we'll be engaging in those. So there's some sort of valence of positive re or negative reinforcement. So it's like amplifying the reinforcement. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Interesting. And presumably also like seriously negative events. You talk about the flashbulb memory, right? If you have high levels of adrenaline, then the memory is imprinted in a, in a much more significant way. That's a way of saying this. Hey, remember this. This is something important. Right. And in many ways, it becomes a bit better ingrained in our neural circuits. So when we have the issues regarding the perception of time. And a lot of people have been talking about this in the context of the pandemic. If you spent a month home alone, you look backwards on those events, maybe that month seemed to be having flown by, to have gone by quickly. And that's something we call retrospective timing, which is associated with memory in the sense that our, the amount of time it seems to have elapsed is correlated with how many new things we've learned. So this is what you were referring to in terms of we want to enrich our lives. We want to have richer experiences. We try to learn a lot. We try to form new memories. And then retrospectively, that seems to have been a time fulfilled with many positive events or worthwhile events. But we have to also contrast that with what we call prospective timing, which is a bit different. So that's our current ongoing sort of continuous estimate of time. And in many ways, that's the opposite, right? So if I'm learning a lot of new things, as I'm learning them, time might seem to be going by because I'm engaged 
in uh, a fun activity, the fun dialogue. So since we've been talking, this conversation has been very fun for me. So I assume only five minutes have gone by. But if it's a boring conversation and not much is happening, then time seems to go by slowly. But retrospectively, since no new memories were formed, it seems to have flown by. So there's this interesting paradox in terms of the same event that went by quickly when I was experiencing it seems to have lasted a long time in retrospect. Fascinating. What's your next book? Hey, what's your, what are you focused on right now? What are you thinking about? I've been thinking more about much of the first topics we've been having in terms of how to debug the brain, the importance of understanding our own neural underpinnings, and particularly what I think is one of our implicit biases. You know, you know a lot of implicit biases. We've talked about implicit biases. I think of one of our implicit biases is that the mind is not a product of the brain, which is something I find fascinating. So the brain creates a mind that is sort of blind to the fact that it's created by the brain. So I think that implicit bias, I'm wondering about the consequence of that implicit bias in accepting who we really are and addressing our flaws. Time has flown by. We never got to talk about what you think about kind of new machine learning techniques, because I think that gap has, has has been closing when it comes to pattern recognition, for sure. This book was in 2011, and I think Alex Net came out right around then. So it's been a very busy last 10 years. And then Alpha Zero and Alpha Go. Yeah, absolutely. But I still recommend, I think it's a great book. Hopefully you'll revise it or add a sequel to it. But Brain Bugs, check it out. Also, Your Brain is a Time Machine. Both fantastic books. Thank you so much, Dean. Greg, thank you very much for having me and making time fly by. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.